everybody. How are we doing? I, I don't know if you showed up uh, here right at 9 o'clock when uh, Daniel introduced himself. Uh, he was the guy with the funny tattoo right here leading us in singing. But that was my friend Daniel Asher all the way from the noble town of Hobart, Indiana. Can we just say thank you to him for leading us in worship today? Daniel and I have a deep history. I love this, love this guy. He's a new dad, by the way. He's got a little boy that's three months old, so congrats to him. Uh, should have been here yesterday for the parenting conference. That's all I got to say. Uh, hey, have you ever, um, have any of your friends ever used the wrong word, but they didn't know they were using the wrong word? I, I in, uh, in high school and college, I had this friend who had always uh, thought the phrase was, don't take it for granted. And we were always like, huh. And if you don't know why that's not the right phrase, you're, that's you. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, 2002, Mike Tyson got beat up in a fight. They, he, he said this afterwards, what are you going to do now? He goes, I might just fade into Bolivian. <laughs> my all-time favorite, my all-time favorite comes from friends. Joey is trying to help Rachel and there's like no solution to her problem. He goes, well, it's a, it's a moo point. <laughs> to which Monica goes, did you say a moo point? And Joey says, yeah, it's like a cow's point. It doesn't matter. It's moo. <laughs> I love that. I, I want the coffee mug that says that. There's, a, there's actually a word for this phenomenon. It's, it's called a malapropism, a malapropism. It's when the wrong word is used, and it sounds like the right word, but it comedically changes the meaning of the sentence, malapropism. Malapropisms highlight how difficult language actually is. I don't think uh, malapropisms are just reserved for people speaking. And as uh, many of us have been in a situation where we use the wrong word it, that sounded like the right word and it changed the entire context completely. I think we also can, can on the hearing side of language, commit malapropisms as well. I think we can hear the right thing the wrong way too. And here's why I think we can hear the right thing the wrong way is because the next verses we're about to look at in 1 Peter in our journey through what it looks like to live the Jesus first life in a Jesus last world, the next verses I think have been heard through a massive distortion filter of our own modern era and we've not heard what the Bible is actually saying. Um, my... my my hunch is that in these verses ahead today, Peter is going to help us as he helps the Jesus followers of his day navigate uh, authorities, employers, spouses, when those authorities, employers, and spouses don't value Jesus. But um, as these verses have been misunderstood and misheard, I think they've also been mishandled, mistaught, and misapplied. So part of my job today is to walk us all through a wide chunk of Peter's letter, a very practical chunk of Peter's letter. And one commentator that I read this week said, no pastor has any business preaching this text to a modern audience because none of it applies to us in America. Today is the day that I earn my money, so to speak. Today's the day where Dan kind of, like, all right, let's go to work uh, as Harlan. Because I want something better for us as a church. I, I don't want us to be people who, who misunderstand what, what the Spirit of God would be saying to us. I want better for myself. I want better for my family. I want better for our church family. I want better for Kansas City than for us to distort 
the word of God because of a malappropriation. Um, there is a word that is going to be heard today. It is a baseline that answers the question, how should the people who live the Jesus first life, how should they act in a Jesus last word? There is a word that Peter uses to tie all three arenas of this life in, in, in relation to governmental authority, in relation to your work, in relation to your family and your spouses. There's one word that ties all of this together. See if you can spot it. Won't be hard. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Okay, that's um, verses 13 and 14. Let's uh, go to the next section. Slaves. Now, that's a problematic word for us. I will get to that in a second, um, but that's not the word. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Okay, now let's uh, look at um, the family. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. I think you probably caught it. The word that Peter uses to bring all three of these realms together for the follower of Jesus is this oh-so-difficult word, submission. Submission. I'm not going to make you say anything out loud today because today's a heavy, a heavy, heavy, heavy topic. Submission. But I want you to think about your relationship to this word, submission. This is a word that is confusing to a modern audience today. It is confusing to us who live in Johnson County. It's confusing to Americans. We, we are not accustomed to thinking about submission in positive ways. Today, submission implies harshness and passivity. Maybe for you, your mind goes to how this word has been used to commit abuse in relationships. Uh, submission, it might make you feel like if you submit to a boss, you won't be able to advance in your company or Maybe you'll lose a sense of equality that you've worked really hard to build within your family. Uh, it's possible that when you hear this word, submission, there is a malappropriation that happens in your mind and you actually think, this is what I, I think is very possible for us today. When a modern person hears this word, submission, we actually think this, don't we? Subjugation. Subjugation, you don't need me to give you a lesson on this, but it's, it's dominating somebody else. It's, it's putting your rule over someone else. It's mandatory obedience to someone in authority over me to the extent that I will lose my rights, I'll lose my voice, I'll lose my agency, I'll lose my freedom. If I do this thinking that I'm doing, thinking that this is going to happen, what actually you're asking me to do is become a doormat to the other person's whims and whimsies, and I will be in a tough spot. We all come to these texts this morning with a simple question. Maybe you don't know you're asking it, but this is what we're asking. Is this what God means when we talk about this? Is this what Peter means when we talk about this? Let me take the air out of the room for a second. The answer to that is very clearly no. No. 
And my, my goal today is to help us see the beauty of what Peter is trying to show the Jesus followers in a day of intense persecution when following Jesus was not getting you any credit in society. I'm here today to tell us that um, what Peter means is actually a little bit more cunning in the best sense of the word. It brings about the fullness of God's kingdom while the world isn't even noticing. See, when, when Peter uses this word submit, it includes shades of another word that help us see what he has in mind is less like subjugation and it's way more like subversion. Now, um, subversion doesn't sound like a positive word to us either. Subversion is what happens when someone wants to topple an institution or overthrow a, you know, you got a substitute teacher and the whole class turns against them. You subvert the authority structure in the classroom and the students get their wet. That's subversion. But subversion has positive connotations to it as well. In fact, Christianity is, by its very nature, subversive. Peter doesn't seem to be undermining any institutions in his instructions. He seems actually to be doubling down on the instructions for them to be submitted to the institutions. He seems to be strengthening the idea of the institutions. So how is he then being subversive? Put simply, Peter is instructing his followers of Jesus, the followers of Jesus that he knows, to act like Jesus, to bend the systems of this world, to become more like the ways of Jesus. You've probably never thought of yourself in this light. I just recently, a couple of years ago, was introduced to this idea by the writings of a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in the Baltimore area for decades and wrote a lot about um, um, this idea of us being subversive Christians. Uh, the, the book that I will draw a lot of my thinking from today is from the book that he wrote called The Contemplative Pastor. It's got a great chapter in there on subversion. And to help us understand what Peter is doing, he's asking the followers of Jesus to act like Jesus and bending the systems of this world to the ways of Jesus, to the kingdom of Jesus. And he's doing this in a way where his words are situated within his world. Here's a little bit of like Bible 101, right? Whenever you come to the Bible, the words were written to a specific world. Peter's words are meaningful for Peter's world. So if you and I have any hope for understanding what actually is being said here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, we got to do a little bit of the work to time travel. This is, I think, modern day audience's big complaint with pastors. We are obsessed with the first century. Like some people have levied the critique about pastors, you know more about the first century than you do the 21st century. But we have to know something about the world with which the Bible was written so that we can make the leap to understand what the Bible has to say about the world that you and I live in. Peter's words have to be understood in the context of his world. And so here's what I want to do, just very simply. I want to walk you through how Peter's words were meant for his world so that then you and I can put this all back together at the end and see how it means for us. To do this is going to require a lot of grace from you. Are you guys willing to hang with me for just a couple minutes? I can't tell you, I've worked nonstop this week to make sure that this is a short message. <laughs> I, have, I have tried to compile all of this into just a couple thoughts, and I would love to do this quickly. I just need you to stay, stay with me for just, just a, a touch here. Uh, okay, so what's the world like that Peter is writing these words to? First, let's start with the emperor of Rome. The emperor of Rome uh, was, was a young chap who was very handsome. His name was Nero. 
You've heard of Nero. If you grew up in the 2000s, you burned CDs using the Nero app. Nero, uh, it was called that because Nero was the guy who watched Rome burn while he played his fiddle. Nero was probably um, one of the most deranged rulers in history. Nero started his rule. He was a very impressionable young man. He had wonderful advisors around him. Nero, at the beginning of his rule and reign, did amazing things for Rome until Nero became self-obsessed and he had his advisors killed and he started to turn his ire towards his opponents in his Roman Empire. Square in the bullseye of his target were Jesus followers. So um, Nero made life miserable for his opponents, including Christians. They, he systematically persecuted him. There are records uh, after Peter had written this letter, the years that would follow Nero and, and the, the emperors who would follow Nero. Um, this is hard to talk about because this is really horrible. This, I just want to give you a scale of what would happen. The persecution of Christians in Nero's day, he would use Christians. I don't, I don't even want to tell you. Well, all right, I've gotten this far. He would use Christians as, as torches to light his dinner parties with. I know, that's a heavy thing. I'm sorry for that. But that, that's his, this is history. You've got to know what these people were up against. They, they were losing their lives so that this manic emperor could have a party. And to this, Peter has the audacity to tell the Jesus followers of this day, Submit yourself to every human authority, the emperor and all of his cronies who are the governors that he's sent to do his bidding. So that's one problem with the emperor. The second problem with the emperor is that ever since um, Caesar Augustus, who was ruling Rome the time that Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus um, had claimed that he was, I mean, check this out, it's kind of interesting. Jesus uh, was called, we call him this, the God-man, right? He's fully God, fully man. Jesus is the son of God. Well, Caesar Augustus made the same claims about himself. He said that he was the divius filius, which is the son of God. On the coins in Rome in the days was Caesar's coin, and around it said the son of God. Uh, He had started his own temple to worship him. He had said that if you worship me and come to me and give me honor and homage, I will make sure that we flourish together. So all around Rome, they, they would build the imperial cult. They would put up temples where people would come together, and it was normal to worship the emperor. Now, I... The best thing that I have, and I'm so sorry, we just won the Super Bowl, but I feel like, like Arrowhead is the closest thing we have to emperor worship around here. Where you will give undivided amounts of energy, time, and attention to celebrate a team of people, and you'll gather together, and nobody will think twice except for the people who opt out of that system. You ever talk to somebody on a Sunday, you go, are you going to watch the game today? And they go, no, I don't do that. And you, you're suspicious of them. <laughs> Aren't you? You're like, what are you? You're a Broncos fan, is what you are. (laughs) You're hiding. And and this was, uh, you know, to to bring the analogy back to the first century, uh, this was what happened with Jesus followers. Jesus followers opted out of worshiping the earthly son of God, the God-man Caesar, and they actually were compelled that Jesus, who rose from the dead, was the true son of God. They opted out. They brought their tithes and their money and their worship to a separate place. They would huddle together in their own homes and worship on, on, the, on the Sundays. 
the days when the whole community was going and paying homage to Caesar, they would actually huddle up. It was a very subversive act. It was a very intentional countercultural way of giving their ordered praise to Jesus. So not only did the emperor have them square in the target as, uh, as rebellious people, but they, Christians of that day were kind of caught in a hard place because they couldn't in good conscience go to the temples and worship Caesar. But not, by not participating in the emperor worship, they were actually causing the people around them to be suspicious. They were, they were accused of being up to no good. You don't care about our community. You're not invested the way that we are. You don't want us to flourish the way that we want to flourish. To these people, Peter says, submit yourselves to every human authority. And then he moves on and he says something even harder for modern readers to comprehend. He talks uh, to slaves. Now, um, I, feel like I, I, I feel like I'm trying to explain something to my kids. I don't mean that patronizingly, but I'm like, can I get to have all the eyes up here? This is a really hard topic because the history of our country is uh, blighted by the institution of slavery that not one of us participated in, but is deeply embedded in the cultural pain of America. We can't choose to ignore that pain. We can't overlook it. We can't dismiss it. It is a real pain that plays itself out today. And because of this pain in our country of, 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 of what happened, it is almost an impossible category for us to discuss without thinking of what happened in our country. And I wouldn't blame you if at one point in your life you walked away from Jesus because you couldn't harmonize with yourself a God who would bring freedom to this world and simultaneously allow people to own people. I wouldn't blame you if you ever walked away thinking that that was inconsistent, it, it, that, that maybe you thought the Bible was pro-slavery. It sounds like the Bible is pro-slavery. But hear this. This is the eyes part. Peter is not implying that slavery is okay. Peter never would have been able to look forward in the course of history and imagine the horrors of chattel slavery that persisted for centuries in the Americas and the traumatic ripples that it would cause in our society even today. Hear me loud and clear. The Bible does not anywhere allow for the atrocities that happen to people of color in our country. It is a twisting of God's good order and design when people enslave and own as property other image bearers. And to whatever degree any prior generation participated in this heinous system under the auspice of divine blessing. I go on record saying like we need to repent of that. In Peter's world, here's what I want to try and do the impossible, is, is I, we got to actually like separate ourselves from what we experienced in the 16th through 19th centuries and go all the way back to the first century. If you can do that in your mind, I think this will be a profitable thing. If you can't because this is a really tough issue, I understand. I'm going to keep moving on in a second. But if we go back to the first century, Rome did not treat slavery the way that America had slavery. In Peter's world, slavery was, a, was still difficult, nonetheless, 
But it was a very common means of improving one's station in life. Slavery in the Roman Empire was actually an economic choice that a person would make to become available, available themselves of the better life. Here's how it worked. Oftentimes, if someone wanted to purchase a field or take out a loan, there was no centralized banking system and APR rates and all these things that we have today. They would actually put down as collateral their own labor. And they would say to someone who was wealthy and had means, I would like to buy this field. I'd like to start this business. And so I will work for you for three years if you will loan me the money in advance. And then, they, then for three years, you'd pay off your debt to the person. And slaves in Rome owned their own property. They had their own homes. They had their own families. They'd do things on the weekends. Some, this is mind-boggling to us. Some slaves in Rome actually owned other slaves. It's a very different system altogether. Soldiers who were conquered in war would be brought into Rome. They would be given jobs by the Roman government. They would have a set amount of time to them. And they would serve their time until their debt was paid. At which moment, upon fulfilling their obligations to Rome, they would become a full Roman citizen. And because of this, many people chose slavery as a route to Roman citizenship. Approximately one-third, this is a mind-boggling stat, but one-third of the entire population of Rome was in this category of slavery. And I really wish that um, Peter would have used the word employees because it's kind of more of that type of thing. But employee is a word that was brought to us from French in 1850. That was 1850 years before Peter was even writing, had the concept of what an employee would look like. It was a totally different situation. Another differentiation between Roman slavery and American slavery is that slavery was temporary. Most of the time, slaves were released by the age of 30 to live their life. Maybe most importantly, the slavery that existed in this day in Rome was not ethnically targeted nor driven. In fact, slaves as a group was one of the most diverse groups in the human history. They uh, were a group of people, they retained their own power. They were attached, they had more power if they attached themselves to a very powerful figure. So a lot of times it worked as like a business internship would work for us today. I read this week one um, expert, Scott McKnight, put this in his commentary. He said that um, doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains all comprise the slave population. It was a voluntary agreement for you to work off a debt to be able to get ahead in life. And to these people, Peter says, the best thing you can do now that you found your freedom in Jesus is not to abandon your post, but to hang with it and obey your master. Fulfill your debt. Pay your debts is essentially what Peter is saying. Fulfill your work might be a better translation. See, many of them would have heard their freedom in Jesus and wanted to abandon the debt that they had to somebody else and just stick their master with the bill. And Peter says, no, 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 that's not the way of Jesus. Here's the way of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example, a pattern, kind of like you learned how to trace the ABCs. This is the word here, uh, an example that we should follow. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, no lies. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is the ultimate example that Peter points 
these first century followers too. Saying, you follow Jesus, look at the way of Jesus. He had a full trust in God to the point that he didn't even need to defend himself, even to the most ruthless of people. Okay, so if uh, you know, dealing with the emperor was enough and dealing with slavery was enough, let's talk about wives. Isn't this fun, guys? <laughs> Thanks for sticking with me. I'm going to put this all back together in a moment and bring it all home for us. Um, yeah, he tells wives... This is a hot-button topic in our day. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. A bunch of reasons why Peter would say this, but I just want to give you the context real quick. Uh, There's a very specific wife that Peter is addressing here. It's a wife who has converted to Christianity, but her husband, if any of them do not believe the word, that means they don't follow Jesus. She's converted to Christianity, but her husband hasn't. In all of these situations, the followers of Jesus exist in a world where the people who are in control of their lives have not followed Jesus themselves. The emperor hasn't followed Jesus. The person who owns their debt hasn't followed Jesus. And their husband hasn't followed Jesus. What do you do when the people who are in control of your life don't follow Jesus like you do? He says, submit to your own husbands. In this society, um, just like slaves were low in society, a wife was considered to be lower than her husband. Wives were expected to follow their husband's lead in religious matters. They were considered to be dishonoring of their husbands if they didn't join in with them. This caused all sorts of problems for these women when they stopped attending the pagan temples to worship Caesar. Their husbands looked at them and said, what are you doing? How could you dishonor me? And Peter says, to help your husbands understand that you aren't against them, Live a pure life in their presence, and then they may be enticed to consider faith for themselves. If we put these, these three arenas together, you know, of, of following the governmental authorities, of, of respecting those who are providing for our livelihood, and, and honoring those with whom we live and are covenantally uh, bound in marriage, we're going to see something about the subversive ways of submission so that we don't lead ourselves down the ways of thinking that we need to be doormats, but rather we can become transformative agents for the kingdom of God the way Peter is instructing these followers of Jesus to become. This is what Peter has in his mind with a clear, definite end, the transformation of society, a positive transformation of society, the better world actually coming to fruition through to the acts of subversive submission. I want to give us three real quick principles about what subversives do. The first is this. Peter is telling us, subversives turn the system from within. Subversives are people who are going to make positive change in the world, not by toppling over the structures and systems of the world, but by working from within, silently, undetected, just the same way the gospel came into your life. I'm convinced that Peter has in mind subversion for us because um, Jesus himself was subversive. I'm convinced that when um, Peter says that subversives are are those who are going to, to change from within, he's got in mind that one moment. Do you remember, do you remember that moment in the garden when Jesus was being arrested? The Roman soldiers came with torches and swords. Jesus looks at him and says, you come against me 
like I'm a criminal. And who is it that brandishes a sword and cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier? It's Peter. This guy took a sword to a Roman soldier. Peter knows what it is to love Jesus and want to defend his honor. Peter knows something about the tendency that we all have in our own heart, in our zeal to protect Jesus and all that he stands for. And he also knew Jesus' own disdain at that type of approach to transforming the world. What does Jesus say to Peter in that moment? He says, put away your sword, Peter. I can't imagine how infuriating it would have been for Peter to watch Jesus heal the ear of the man that he wanted to take down. And then after the resurrection, which is of itself its own subversion of death to life, Peter finally saw a better way of Jesus. It took Jesus dying, being buried, and being raised from the dead for Peter, this zealous protector of Jesus, to realize that Jesus don't need no protecting. To the antsy Christians then who are scattered amongst the world who are still facing that same foe in Rome, Peter says this, don't overthrow the most ruthless government in the whole world. In fact, Honor the emperor's rules and his underlings who are governing the various provinces around you. Obey their decrees. This will keep anyone from saying those Christians are just out to topple the system. They're hungry for power and they're hungry for control. Actually, they're not with us, but they're against us. Peter says to them, I don't think I have this on the screen. I probably should have put this up there for you, but here's what he says. Verse 15. He says, for it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I'll put that on the screen in a second. I'm going to come back to that. The purpose that he has is actually to change the response that the world has to Christians. That by our doing good, we can actually influence change in this world. And then for bond servants, that's, a, that's the person who's decided to go into servitude to somebody else. You should fulfill your duties and pay off your debts. Peter's saying to them in this world, don't collapse the economic system that we all depend upon. Instead, you can change the institution of slavery by fulfilling your duties, becoming Roman citizens, and making change that way. He says in the future, we can make changes if we stay. Wives, your husband doesn't follow Jesus. You're tempted to abandon your covenant with him. This is very, uh, Jesus gives permission for this. Certain re reasons for divorce, Jesus lays out. We can talk about that later. But, but Peter says, yeah, maybe the vehicle's available to you, but stay with your husband for the sake of God and stay for the, with your husband for the sake of him. Why? So that you can change from within. Not to be subjugated. It's a different story. But to be subversive. You know, Peter is aware of how we act within society. It's got a massive impact whether or not people will see Jesus. I, we've got this impulse. Every, you know, Western person has this impulse these days just to burn the whole thing down and like, like Fight Club and just watch it all burn. Um, but Jesus followers don't. 
uh, Peter knows that God himself changed history by entering our history. He changed humanity by entering and submitting to a human body. He changed death by submitting to death. The way that God brings about change often is slowly from within. And so listen, listen, listen. We don't topple systems. We don't take back anything for God. We simply live our lives among people with respect so that we can earn a hearing. This is Peter's example for us in a Jesus last world. That leads us to the second principle for how we live the Jesus first life. Submissives turn the system from within, but, but also notice this. Subversives save their words. So much of this passage is um, about how there are no words being spilt. Uh, Brad Herndon has dared me to sing the song at the end of the service more than words <laughs> as like the perfect conclusion to the service because it's really the absolute encapsulation of what Peter is saying. But, but I, I don't know, watch this. I mean, pointing to the ultimate example of Jesus, and Brad's on to something here. He, he's watch, watch what Peter says about Jesus, right? I mean, I bolded all the things about the words. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Is this true of Jesus' followers today? I hope that's true of us. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. God help us for Twitter. <laughs> I mean, that's like a, that's as, as, as Lord have mercy as I can get. When he suffered. Right? And he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He saw that his life was protected by a higher power by his own father, the same father that you and I have. One of the most confusing parts of Jesus' crucifixion is that he didn't fight the charges. We're going to talk about this in the coming days as we get closer to Easter and Good Friday, but, but one of the reasons he didn't is because the kingdom of God doesn't come through winning arguments or through warfare. Listen, we are not a people of conquest or insurrection. When, when Peter says, honor the emperor, he follows it up, Here, here's the verse, by saying it's God's will that by doing good, you will actually shut up the talk of people who don't know what they're talking about. That you saving your words will help them understand that their words are not useful against you. And he says it's by doing good that this will happen. Not by your persuasive speech or by your eloquence or by your Facebook memes, but by doing good, by acting in the world. And isn't it true that today all that people in our world just want from Christians is to act like Jesus? They don't want us to fight with them. They don't want us to turn America into a Christian nation. We can be more subversive than that. That by actually leaning in and saving our words, by showing the example of Jesus, would not we have a better witness today? If you're not convinced by this, I'll just point you to 1 Peter 3, verse 1, which says to wives, wives, in the same way, that's in the same way that Jesus did not open his mouth, did not have deceit in it, did not revile, did not make threats. Submit yourselves to your husbands. Why? Well, because if they don't believe in the word, that's Jesus, they might be won over without words by the behavior of their wives that you can show the inner, internal transformation of who Jesus has made you to be in such a sweet way that it begs the question, how can I also 
be changed. It would have been revolutionary to usurp a husband's authority by just simply converting to Christianity, but still love them, this is what Peter says, in a way that they can't argue with you whether or not following Jesus is a good thing for the both of you. And then here's the big idea. Subversives save their words. They make changes from the inside out by doing good. And finally, here's where I want to leave us, and then I want us to reflect in communion for just a few moments. They, um, when we submit subversively, you and I are actually doing something incredibly powerful for the world. We're making visible the invisible kingdom of God. I say it this way, subversives reveal God's invisible kingdom. This is what got me out of bed to preach this morning. To get us to this point right here right now where we could kind of get ourselves past the malappropriations of the word submission and the word slaves and the instructions to wives. Really to show all of this is to show the world this is what God is like. This is the goal. To show the world the reconciling power of God who restores and redeems and invites anyone who believes to be a part of it. There's a motivation I'm so glad you guys are coming out right now. Now's the wrong moment. I got like seven pages left. I'm totally kidding. Come on up. <laughs> that was a joke for you guys. While they're coming out, we're, we're going to transition to communion in a second. I want to show you this. There's, there's a motivation hiding in plain sight in all of these verses. Just stick with me here for a second. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, to the wives, he says, you know, you're going to change your husband by your uh, example and by the demonstration of him changing you from the inside out. This is valuable in God's sight. He's going to talk to husbands in a moment, and I'm going to get there. He says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers, your communion with God in your life. Everything about submission has to do with the presence of God in our very lives. The reason that we would actually think about honoring those who are above us or paying our debts or being submitted to the ways of this world, even as much as we disagree with them and even as much as they are potentially harmful to us, is because God is present in the midst of it. When we're courageously showing the love of others, of, of God to others and submission to them, we're actually honoring God. God is pleased with us when we show the world a better way. Wives, if you know that there's a verse coming and I haven't talked to husbands yet and you're a little bit like waiting for it, here it comes. Husbands, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook. Because his encouragements for the husbands are no less subversive even though he doesn't use the word submit. What he says to husbands I think is actually the most subversive of all of it. Here's what he says. He says, husbands, in the same way, as Jesus, same standard for wives. It applies to you too. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Let me give you the background. Uh, to be a husband, to be a man in this day was to have power and authority. The whole entire system was set up to privilege men and husbands. Sexual ethics applied severely to wives that did not apply to husbands. So her faithfulness to her husband was her responsibility. 
but he was not by law required to be faithful to his wife. Did you know that? So a lot of people got married out of just sheer practicalities. Many husbands would be guilty of looking at their wives as just for them. So when Jesus raises from the dead and women go and see him and are the first people to be the evangelists to say that Jesus is alive, Jesus has already elevated the status of women. And as Peter is looking at what it means to be a Jesus follower in the world, he looks at men, at husbands, and he says, you know, this arrangement that we have with the world that guys get to do whatever they want, it's really not fair to the way that God created us. That actually you're modeling for the world a selfishness that is foreign to the person of Jesus. That if actually we want to show the world what marriage looks like, it's going to be up to husbands to be considerate. Don't take it down. Leave it up. To be considerate. To actually know your wife and what she's facing. To honor her as someone who has value and worth. To see beyond just what she gives to you. To actually be, this is, the, this is the crazy thing. Go to the, the next slide. To see her as co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. She is so precious to God the same way that you are precious to God. And here's what I think is subversive if we can submit to one another in this world. I don't think this is what marriage looks like today. I'll be bold enough to just say, I think even Christians are failing at this basic submission to one another. But what if, what if you and I, those of us who are married, we took seriously this call to lay down our lives for the sake of the other person and, a, and saw that a true Christian marriage is not one where one person is satisfied and the other person is subjugated, but where both are submitted to God and each other. That would subvert the entire structures of marriage in our world today. That would bring about such a flourishing in our society that we long to see. When we see that, we recognize that subversion is actually God's way of getting at our own hearts. That what God is doing in us is subverting our own desires when we submit ourselves to other people. We're learning to trust him. We're learning to love others. And we're learning to pave a way for people to find their way home in Jesus. So um, what do we do with this? The first thing I think is just simply, I, I hope you see that the Bible is not pro-slavery and anti-women. That's just like the baseline takeaway today. The second is to consider how are we expecting ourselves to participate in this world? Do, do we find ourselves fighting wars on Jesus' behalf? What would, people, what would Peter say to us? He would say, win from within. He would say, win without words. And he would say, win without selfish motive. <laughs>